I'm Bert Cohen, and with your help, we are keeping democracy alive. Check for pulse. Stand clear. Push to shock. So, yes, there's a huge gap between public opinion and public policy. That people don't feel that they can do very much. You know what this is? This is a very Hamiltonian system. Alexander Hamilton being the guy here in a very un-Jeffersonian. In the case of the Republicans, it's dramatically the opposite. Uh, But even in the case of the Democrats. An absolute typhoon of terror against African Americans in the South. America's fascists are those people who think that Wall Street comes first and the American people come second. We're only seen as a financial sector that's uh, gotten out of hand. The shooting, the violence, that is not the drug problem. That is, in fact, the drug policy problem. I speak tonight for the dignity of man. I wonder, could the military-industrial complex that President Eisenhower warned us about in 1961 possibly be so clever as to intentionally distract Americans from the death and destruction our policies cause with the bizarre circus of unending political distractions. They're probably not that clever, and certainly the people in the Middle East, Africa, and Asia, and Europe are not distracted. They know about the U.S. and Saudi war on Yemen and the death, destruction, and disease it is causing. But it seems that we Americans know virtually nothing about what our tax dollars are reaping in Yemen, or probably even where Yemen is. There was a brief news blip in August when the Saudi bombing of a school bus in Yemen killed 44 children. Then, with all the daily barrage of all Trump all the time, that awareness quickly went away. Now, it has been called the worst humanitarian disaster in the world, What is going on in Yemen? Why is it happening? How does it affect American interests in the region? In other ill-advised wars, millions took to the streets in America. What did the war makers learn from that experience that is helping them make this very profitable war virtually without notice? And are there any efforts in Congress to stop this war, which, aside from killing thousands of very poor Yemenis, is doing such harm to Americans standing in that part of the world. Well, to address these and other questions, our guest today is Nicholas J.S. Davies, author of Blood on Our Hands, The American Invasion and Destruction of Iraq. He also wrote the chapters on Obama at War, in grading the 44th president, a report card on Obama's first term as progressive leader. Yeah, He wrote an article with Code Pink co-founder and well-known troublemaker Medea Benjamin called... In Yemen and beyond, U.S. arms manufacturers are abetting crimes against humanity. And it's subtitled, Our Leading Weapons Dealers Have Developed a Business Model That Feeds on War, Terrorism, Chaos, Political Instability, and Human Rights Violations. And before you think that listening to this podcast will just depress you because it's terrible and there's nothing you can do, stay with us. There is some degree of new hope for stopping this carnage. Nicholas J.S. Davies, thank you so much for being with us on Keeping Democracy Alive. Where to yeah, st- thanks for having me, Bert. Where to start? Well, we might as well start with the most obvious question, asking where Yemen is 
and what the war is about. When did it start? Take a few minutes and uh, and go over that because people people don't know. Okay, well, um, Yemen is um, if if you look at the Arabian Peninsula, the southern part of it is divided between east and west, and the western part is Yemen. The eastern part is Oman, which borders on the uh, Persian Gulf and the Straits of Hormuz. Yemen borders on the Arabian Sea and the Red Sea. Um, To quickly summarize uh, Yemen's history, uh, Yemen was ruled for over a thousand years by the Zaidi Imams. The Zaidis are a sect, uh, generally considered a Shiite sect, although this is a different Shiite sect than the one in Iran. But the fact that it, it, they, the Zaidis are a Shiite sect has sort of justified uh, Saudi animosity towards them. Uh, back in the 1960s, the Zaidi imams were overthrown by uh, Egyptian-backed um, Republican movement in Yemen, um, which formed the Yemen Arab Republic. Interestingly, at that point, the Saudis actually supported the Zaidi imams. Um, this time, uh, basically, the, the, during the Arab Spring in 2011, there was a great deal of unrest in Yemen. Uh, the longtime dictator... Uh, um, a guy called, uh, I'm forgetting his name now, I'm sorry, <laughs> but anyway, the Saleh, uh, right, the um, President Saleh of, uh, of Yemen. Um, there were calls from many different factions for him to resign and give way to a new government. Eventually, with sort of international brokerage, including from the U.S., he stepped down, and his vice president, uh, whose name is Hadi, uh, was essentially appointed to run the country for two years. They held an election, but this was one of those elections with only one candidate, and he, he did get the approval of the majority um, of, the, of the people to run the country for two years. Okay, that was in 2012. So his term should have expired in 2014. During those two years, he was supposed to uh, draft a new constitution and then hold a general election in 2014 uh, for a new democratic government in Yemen. Uh, He did not do that. And the very powerful Houthi movement, who are Zaidis from the north of Yemen, the Zaidis, by the way, make up about half the population, Um, but they they have really got on pretty well with uh, the Sunni, Sunni uh, Arabs in Yemen. Um, you know, in Sana'a, the capital, they have shared the same mosques, uh, prayed together in the same mosques. This is not a, a, what you would think of as, as a sort of violent sectarian situation. Hmm. Um, so anyway, but the Houthis uh, basically took over the capital at that point, in 2014, placed Hadi under house arrest and demanded that he complete 
his job, in other words, to, uh, you know, to finish drafting a constitution and then organize a new election. He essentially sat there and refused, and in 2015, he fled to his hometown of Aden in the south on the Arabian Sea, um, and then to Saudi Arabia. Um, he did, by the way, when he left uh, Sana, say that he was resigning, but when he got to Saudi Arabia, he decided to sort of reverse his resignation and say that he was still the, le the president, legitimate president of Yemen. And uh, the Saudis agreed basically to launch a war to, to reinstate him. Mm. And this is the war that has now been going on in Yemen with U.S. support since 2015. Three years. I, I, I said, you know, there are, as in all these wars, you know, there are uh, published figures of how many confirmed deaths there are, right. which is now well over 10,000. But, you know, these are probably a tiny fraction of the true number of people being killed. All, you know, they, this war has reduced one of the poorest countries in the world certainly one of the certainly the poorest country in the middle east you know to as you said a humanitarian crisis the un um is now supplying relief of you know food and the basics of life to 8 million people in yemen mm. and they are said at the recent un general assembly that in fact three quarters of the population about 22 million people are in fact in need of humanitarian uh, assistance, um, and I understand the cholera epidemic. Yeah, a million yeah. people have have had cholera. <laughs> Again, you know, at least a thousand or two thousand of them have died, and you know, and this is only getting worse. Since June the first, another half a million people have been displaced. From the port city and the and the and the province around it, Hodeida, mm. um, as the Saudi-led coalition uh, has, has launched new attacks on the port of Hodeida to try and Stop. take take Stop. it from Houthi control, um, you know. And so, so really, uh, this this just keeps getting worse for for the people of Yemen. Indeed, and and as you talked about, an election was promised, and election didn't happen. Gosh, that reminds me of uh, Vietnam in 1954, when an election was promised to avoid a war, and then uh, because one side uh, realized that they would lose, they canceled the election, and the U.S. got involved in that internal struggle as well, and you know that was the war in Vietnam. And I can understand why people in America don't generally, you know, have a lot of awareness about Yemen because it is compli complicated there. And, you know, which side is which? And it's so far away. But the Saudis, what what is their interest in this? I mean, they it's their war. They're leading the war. They're making the war. They're dropping the bombs using American made bombs and being fueled by uh, American planes. But but what is the Saudis' interest in, in Yemen? Well, it is it is their neighbor. Um, but, you know, the S Saudi Arabia has been on a sort of project 
for the last, you know, really, I suppose, about the last 10 years or so, to build itself into a major military power and establish itself as the the major regional power in the Middle East. And the U.S. has essentially been supporting that project. Um, the, the U.S. is the largest arms supplier to Saudi Arabia. Um, and, uh, and the U.S. is part of this coalition that is waging war on Yemen. Uh, and, and, and the, the U.S., of course, is, is very glad to, um, un- you know, with the power of the military industrial complex here, they're very glad to be selling tens of billions of dollars of weapons to Saudi Arabia. And also with the absolute catastrophic mess that U.S. U.S. intervention, direct U.S. intervention, has made uh, since 2001 in Afghanistan, Iraq, uh, Libya, now Syria too, and um, the U.S. Is, is eager to essentially hand over uh, the job of making war in the Middle no. East to Saudi Arabia. Ah, uh, interesting, and that that works well with. Uh you know, I, I previewed this a little bit on, on Facebook, and a right-wing Facebook friend who used to be married to Trump's good friend Roger Stone writes, quote, Trump is building a Middle East NATO. This brings Israel together with all the Middle East countries against Iran. That sounds similar to what you were talking about. Your reaction to that comment, please. Yeah, that's the, you. You could say um, the yeah. That's a fairly accurate statement. Um, whether it will ever be formalized in an actual formal uh, treaty organization like NATO, it's hard to imagine Israel and Saudi Arabia forming such an organization together. But that is possible. We we don't know. But in effect. Um, the U.S., you know, is trying, along with, as it has always done, as the U.S. has always done for NATO and for a long time for Israel, Mm -hmm. the U.S. is essentially trying to extend what Amnesty International, uh, Amnesty International once called its accountability-free zone for war crimes. Now, um, beyond uh, NATO and Israel, extend it also to Saudi Arabia. And and so in the wake of this school bus bombing in August, uh, the U.S. dispatched a general to Riyadh to work with the Saudis on how to essentially sort of fudge uh, their response to, you know, the outrage of the world over sure. the school bus bombing. Yeah. And, and you know, the way the Saudis have responded is, is very similar to how the U.S. and Israel respond to these kind of uh, atrocities that they commit, um, essentially claiming to, you know, the world we're conducting an investigation and, and uh, you know, that we, we will hold a, Accountable, anyone who is, you know, found to have been, you know, uh, to, to have violated the law or made mistakes, or, you know, and 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 
you know, but this this was announced about a month ago now, and of course nothing has happened. Right. Really what they do, and this is what the U.S. always does in response to its own atrocities, is to essentially wait for the general public outrage to die down, you know, and about a year later somebody will remember this and go, oh, you know, no, nobody, nobody was prosecuted, were they? Um, and, uh, you know, some report will be quietly issued saying that, well, you know, yes, somebody was, uh, you know, somebody got a slapper on the wrist somewhere, and, and that'll essentially be it, and the war will continue, and by then there'll be more atrocities to talk about. Um, how, how rare was this? How, how rare was this uh, killing of 44 children? I mean, that obviously garnered a lot of attention, bombing a school bus. But, you know, there's well, always... Well, it's not the worst. It's not the worst one of these cases. The worst one of these cases was in 2016 when they bombed another marketplace and killed 107 people. Um, that was a bit earlier in the war, so it got less attention. Also, only 25 of the people killed in that bombing were children. Um, but the, the, there has been a, you know, a, a bit of a cumulative reaction, particularly, um, I would say, in the U.S. Congress. Um, a number of, of Democratic members of Congress have gradually been stepping up efforts to try and mm -hmm. respond to this. There have been a couple of votes in the Senate over cutting off uh, the U.S. role in this war and cutting off mm -hmm. uh, weapons supplies to Saudi Arabia. Um, both were defeated. Um, one was defeated. I, actually, both of them were defeated quite narrowly. I mean, as uh, in many of such votes in the U.S. Senate, what you have is unanimity or near unanimity among the Republicans. Sure. And then, you know, you get about half a dozen of the more hawkish Democrats who mm. can be relied on to join them to make sure that bills like that don't pass. Uh -huh. um, you know, not least uh, Bill Nelson from Florida, who, who the, the weapons industry can can always rely on to defend its interests in the Senate. Ah, that's nice that there's always something we can rely on. There is now <laughs> a new bill yes. introduced in, in the House by Ro Khanna of California, and um, this would actually end all U.S. participation in the Saudi-led war in Yemen. It would effectively prohibit U.S. forces from taking part. It has... 53 co-sponsors, yeah. um, 50 Democrats, three Republicans. Um, and so, you know, the, as more people are killed every day that this takes, you know, there is little by little starting to be um, some opposition. Well, it does... Whether and when that could possibly be successful in ending the war... It's very hard to say. I mean, it will take greater public outrage from around the world and, and certainly more attention from within the United States and we have been to really get the U.S. out of this. We have been so distracted by all Trump all the time and then the Kavanaugh thing, so people don't know it. And in the past, you know, we've had a lot of anti-war protests, but... Obviously, it's not happening now. If you just tuned in, dear listener, Bert Cohen here. The show is Keeping Democracy Alive. Our guest today is Nicholas J.S. Davies, 
author of Blood on Our Hands, The American Invasion and Destruction of Iraq. And we're talking about a, an article that he and uh, Medea Benjamin of Code Pink co-wrote called In Yemen uh, and Beyond. U.S. arms manufacturers are abetting crimes against humanity, abetting crimes against humanity, the marriage of commerce and war. And you write that, quote, the U.S. military-industrial complex wields precisely the unwarranted influence over U.S. foreign policy President Eisenhower warned us against in his farewell address in 1961, end of quote. And you name five specific military contractors who have been benefiting handsomely from this neat arrangement. Please share that information with listeners and specifically how they are exercising unwarranted influence over our foreign policy. Well, as, uh, you know, when President Eisenhower coined the term military-industrial complex, in fact, he wanted to say military-congressional-industrial complex or military-industrial-congressional complex. But essentially, yeah, we have a, a revolving door and a confluence of interests there yeah. between the, the members of Congress who hand over the lion's chair of U.S. federal tax revenues to the Pentagon and the other um, agencies involved in, in weapons and war. Um, we have the Pentagon itself that is, you know, a huge, powerful institution um, and, and it's still remarkably a remarkably respected institution in the United States. And who are those, those if I could just interrupt briefly, who are the, the five specific military contractors who have been benefiting quite directly from this Yemen thing? Well, five U.S. companies are among the six largest weapons makers in the world. They are, in order of size, largest Lockheed Martin, Second Boeing, of whom, you know, we think of Boeing as building passenger airplanes, and that is what they started out doing. Um, but at this point, 31% of their revenue comes from making weapons and warplanes and bombs and missiles. Um, third is Raytheon. Fourth is Northrop Grumman. And fifth is General Dynamics, with whom uh, President Obama had a close relationship. One of his longtime political patrons was Lester Crown, who, when he first met him, was the CEO of General Dynamics. Um, he's now retired and in his 80s or 90s, but um, oh yeah, it's a long. Uh, the the Crown family of Chicago were among the, the the most important patrons of Barack Obama's political career. And, you know, certainly it would be wrong to say that the Democrats are, you know, against this. No, no, we've been benefiting from, uh, you know, candidates have been benefiting from uh, the war profiteers for uh, quite a long time. So it's it's kind of uh, even. But there is action on the Democratic side, and we'll cover that before this the end of this show. And... There's a, a the article that's written uh, refers to a, a new report for Code Pink and the Divest from the War Machine campaign, and that talks about the absolute monarchy of Saudi Arabia using American weapons to repress internal dissent. I, I wonder, tell us about that and how their war against Yemen might help 
the Saudis maintain their hold on power? Because I understand a lot of people in Saudi Arabia are, are restive and, and the royal family uh, is, is kind of nervous about that. So how does the war in Yemen play into that scenario? Well, um, the, uh, I, you know, as we were talking about, the Zaidis in Yemen are Shiites uh, of, a, of a kind, um, but they are not the only Shiites on the Arabian Peninsula. And in fact, there's a large Shiite population inside Saudi Arabia um, <clears throat> over on the, the other side, near the Persian Gulf, um, and in fact, I- inhabiting the area where most of Saudi Arabia's oil lies. Um, <clears throat> the, that Shiite population in Saudi Arabia um, have long complained that they are treated as second-class citizens. They're always viewed as a threat by the Saudi monarchy. Um, and, and of course, they do occupy you know, what is a critical region for the Saudis, where all its oil lies. Um, So, um, again, beginning with the Arab Spring, um, the the Shiites in Saudi Arabia began to protest um, as they were brutally, savagely repressed. Um, um, There was actually some, you know, armed, armed protest from the Shiites. Um, the, in 2012, uh, the Saudis arrested the, the leading imam and religious leader of the Shiites uh, in that part of, of Saudi Arabia, whose name was Nimr al-Nimr. And then in January 2016, they cut his head off publicly. Oh. Um, mm-hmm. And um, then uh, last year, in 2017... Uh, the Saudis went into the main uh, um, the main city in in that part of Saudi Arabia, Awamiya, and they completely bulldozed um, the heart of the city, uh, a four hundred year old district considered a world heritage site called uh, Muzawara. Uh, yeah, Muzawara. This is where Nimr al Nimr uh, was from. Um, they turfed thousands of people out of their homes with no resettlement or no compensation um, and, and bulldozed the, this whole part of that city. Um, you know, th- this is the kind of brutality uh, that with which the Saudi monarchy responds to any kind of dissent or unrest. Um, you know, they're, so they're sort of giving a lesson terrorized. Yeah, they're giving a lesson to their own people. Ah, see what we're doing, Yemen? Absolutely. Aha. And these are their own people, you know. Um, so, and, I mean, there is, has also, of course, they have also faced unrest over the years from, you know, the Sunni Arab population, from, in fact, from the, uh, the, the, the Wahhabis, the, Ugh. you know, the fundamentalist sect who, who, um, who, you know who they subscribe, who the sure. Saudi monarchy subscribes to, and which which has has been their claim to legitimacy. Yeah. Um, you know, for the for the past hundred years or so, and um, you know, so because of course there's all, this huge contradiction between the fabulous wealth and lavish lifestyles of the Saudi royal family 
and the the sort of puritanical vision of Islam that they have tried to spread in their own country and throughout the world. You know, which, well, serves which them, of yeah. course um, Al Qaeda is 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 part of. Ah, yes, but it serves them stay in power. So what the heck? Who cares? We talk, you know. There's absolutely <laughs> the laws of war. You know, I'm I'm I guess not that familiar with uh, the laws of war. It, 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 when what are they, and when they are violated, is it clear who can be held responsible? How tell us about how the U.S. government and weapons companies effectively shield those responsible from uh, being accountable, as you said, in an uh, accountability-free zone. What, what, how do they keep, you know, the, the responsible parties from being accountable for violating whatever the laws of war are? Well, this, this, this is really, this has been for, for decades, really, an exercise of raw, brutal power on the part of the United States. Because... Um, you know the the Geneva Conventions, which are the heart of the of the laws of war. You know, prohibit killing civilians. They they they, they prohibit torturing people. They um, you know they, they 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 require armed forces to to take responsibility for the lives of civilians in the areas where they're fighting or in. Any occupy any territory that they militarily occupy, um, and the, the Geneva Conventions are, are very explicit. They protect hospitals, they protect medical personnel, um, and they and they protect civilians. Under in in all cases, you know the the Fourth Geneva Convention, which is the one designed to protect civilians, was the one that was newly introduced after World War Two. The ones that protect prisoners of war and soldiers were um, introduced much earlier, um, at the beginning of the 20th century. Um, but so, you know, there, there's really no um, general dispute that the Geneva Conventions apply to U.S. forces and their allies. Um, but the problem is how how do you enforce these laws and the U.S. Uh, you know, since the 1980s, has has essentially placed itself beyond the jurisdiction of international courts. We just saw the reaction of Secretary Pompeo when the International Court of Justice ruled in favor of Iran in terms of you, saying that. You know the U.S. sanctions uh, were violating international law by by um, preventing uh-huh. the delivery of essentials essentials the essentials of life yeah. to the people of Iran. Um, now, I mean this this break of the, the United States, where they have have essentially. Um, you know, where they essentially refuse to accept the jurisdiction of international courts. This really began in the uh-huh. 1980s when Nicaragua took the U.S. to the International Court of Justice. And the, and the court ruled that in its support for the Contras, in its mining of Nicaraguan harbors, 
uh, the U.S. was committing aggression against Nicaragua. And in fact, the court ordered the U.S. to stop what it was doing and to pay war reparations to Nicaragua. The U.S. then uh, uh, essentially announced it would no longer accept the jurisdiction of the International Court of Justice. When Nicaragua came to the U.N. Security Council and asked it to enforce the payment of reparations ordered by the court, uh, the U.S. vetoed the resolution. So, um, you know, this is how the U.S. uses its power in the world to essentially place itself beyond the rule of law, Mm. even as it invokes the rule of law uh, to attack other countries. Right. Do what I say, not what I do. Where have I heard that before? Right. Now, there's a cast of interesting characters in the Trump administration, to put it mildly, and I had never heard of Acting Assistant Secretary of State Charles Faulkner. Who is he, and what is his role in all this? Well, he is the Acting Assistant Secretary of State for Legislative Affairs. Now, after, in the wake of the school bus bombing, uh, most departments at the uh, U.S. State Department agreed that that this was, um, you know, a, a war crime and a violation of human rights, violation of the laws of war. And under U.S. law, um, when when countries that we sell weapons to use them to commit war crimes and to kill civilians and and violate human rights, um, the State Department is supposed to halt those weapon sales, at least suspend them until whatever the problem is, is, is fixed. Secretary Pompeo went before a Senate committee and declared that Saudi Arabia is not violating those U.S. laws in the way it is using those weapons and that it is making real efforts, you know, to, um, to improve its targeting and so on and not, not kill civilians. Um, Pompeo did that over against the advice of the departments at the State Department that are most involved in this, the one, you know, the, the, the Saudi Arabia desk and the Yemen desk, and the, the actual specialists in these countries in the State Department. And he did it on the advice of this guy, Charles Faulkner, from the uh, State Department's Legislative Affairs Department. Now, and Charles Faulkner has an interesting history. He, um, uh, well, 20 years ago, he was working as a clerk in the Virginia uh, State House. And then in 2000, he went to work as a congressional staffer for a couple of members of Congress, one from Louisiana, and then Tom DeLay. So he was a staffer for Tom DeLay. Um, In 2003, He was hired by the State Department as its senior advisor for legislative affairs. 
and he he continued in that capacity working uh, at the State Department until 2009 when Obama was elected, at which point he left and worked for a couple of spent most of the Obama administration working for lobbying firms, big Washington uh-huh. lobbying firms. First, Booz Allen Hamilton, who some of you listeners may have heard of, and then became vice president of a group called the BGR Group, one of whose clients was Raytheon. Mm-hmm. So, this is a, so this is an arms industry lobbyist who then, in uh, 2017, after Trump was elected, went back to the State Department and was appointed Deputy Assistant Secretary in, uh, in the, back in that Legislative Affairs Department at the, uh, at the State Department. So in effect, what we have is a former Raytheon lobbyist. Raytheon does billions of oh, dollars yeah. in business with Saudi Arabia, um, being the one to effectively argue within the state, within the heads of department at the State Department, that no, we should not decertify uh, Saudi Arabia's compliance uh-huh. with, with our laws, and we should in, that Pompeo should, in fact, go to the Congress and lie to Congress, um, you know, and tell them that Saudi Arabia is, in fact, complying with our U.S. export control laws. Well, what better way to make U.S. foreign policy than by having uh, people who profit directly from war be in charge of that policy? How could it be better? You know, as yeah. Well, this is this is going back to we go back to the military industrial complex. Oh yes, complex. the revolving door and, and the revolving door between yes. the different components of the military industrial complex: the yep. weapons companies, the Defense Department. But we are not without power. The, and and the Congress, and here we we have someone who um, you know ro- has has rotated in his career sure. through through all those different uh, institutions. We're talking about Yemen and America's role in helping the Saudis bomb and fuel their planes and uh, kill oh a lot of people in Yemen, and the Americans are you know not particularly aware of it, but the entire region. They know what's going on. It's not helping our interests. Our guest on Keeping Democracy Alive today is Nicholas J.S. Davies, who has uh, co-written an article on uh, in Yemen and beyond, U.S. arms manufacturers are abetting crimes against humanity. And as, as one of the millions of Americans who did all we could to end our war in Vietnam, it seems to me the war makers learned a lot from our protests. Basically... Avoid American casualties. As you write, project U.S. military power by proxy without the U.S. military casualties, domestic political backlash, and international resistance that results from direct uses of U.S. military force. So domestically, as long as there are no, as they say, boots on the ground, no one notices or cares, and it appears to be working. What what do you see about uh, as the foreign policy and military effects of this anything but boots on the ground strategy? It seems to be working rather effectively. Well, yeah, and the the, the problem and and the, the danger really is is actually that up to a point it is working, but it's it's working 
politically within the United States. But, of course, none of this is working out there in the real world where, you know, at the sharp end of these policies. Um, all of this U.S. war making since 2001 has been catastrophic for every single country where the U.S. has intervened militarily, whether it, it invaded directly with hundreds of thousands of troops or whether it outsourced these, these wars to, um, to its allies, whether it's, you know, Israel's attacks on Gaza or whether it is um, the total destabilization of, uh, um, of Syria through... Um, you know, massive CIA com campaigns since 2011 to to arm and support and train, uh, um, you know, foreign jihadis and funnel them into Syria to, to create chaos and destabilize the country. Some of them eventually then formed ISIS, which which then led to um, the the largest one of the one of the largest U.S. bombing campaigns uh, since the Vietnam War. Uh, you know, the U.S. dropped over a hundred thousand bombs and missiles on Syria and Iraq in the name of destroying ISIS, which of course it still has not destroyed. No, it only um, But and in the process, destroyed huge cities. Um, Mosul was a city of. Uh, at least a million and a half people, wow. probably more, you know, before going back 20 years. Um, and most of the center of Mosul was just completely uh, turned to rubble. You know, there are videos that you can you can see on the Internet of people driving through, you know, just streets that have just been reduced to rubble. Raqqa, a slightly smaller city, maybe half a million people, was was destroyed even more completely by U.S. U.S. bombing, uh, rocket attacks by U.S. Marines from a base they called Rocket City outside Mosul, French artillery, heavy artillery, 105 millimeter howitzers, pounding, pounding Mosul every day, um, and and of course you know just thousands and thousands of U.S. airstrikes, but because you know this is all so far away, there were no U.S. Right. very few U.S. troops, only some special operations forces on the ground, and of course those U.S. Marines firing highly indiscriminate rockets from uh, a safe distance, um, and and of course planes and drones flying overhead. Very few U.S. casualties in any of that. So nothing for Americans to cry about. And yet, we should be crying because, you know, hundreds of thousands altogether since, since 2001, millions of people have been killed, most of them civilians. 99.999% who had nothing to do with the crimes of September the 11th in the yeah, United of course. States. Of and, um, you know, we have reduced entire countries to, com you know, endemic now, intractable violence and chaos. Well, it's good. And, I mean, in Yemen, in Yemen, the people of Yemen know who is behind all Of this. course. When, when they respond with, with, with street demonstrations to 
these Saudi, uh, Saudi war crimes, you know, they don't just burn Saudi flags, right. they burn U.S. flags, and they chant, you know, down with the U.S. They, they you know, they, they blame us for this. Well, uh, they know that those weapons are made in the United States. They know that we are part of this coalition and we are supporting all of this and whitewashing it and defending it. Um, and, and so, yes, they hold us responsible as they as they should. Of, of course they should. And, uh, you know, certainly our actions are recruiting very effectively for the other side. I mean, we couldn't possibly gain more recruits for ISIS and the others. You know, it's just, it's helping, it's giving them tremendous recruiting capability. But the bottom line is, eh, it's good for business. It's really good for business. If we didn't have somebody like ISIS, uh, you know, who the heck would, I mean, nobody would be buying their weapon systems from Raytheon and all those other companies. And that seems to be making policy. Um, it's interesting. And, and you know, there's another danger here, Bert, which is, as we have seen under Secretary Mattis, um, official U.S. war policy is now shifting because, you know, the, the, the so-called war on terror yes. has, has served its purpose. It, it, it fueled this huge, huge increase in, in, in U.S. weapon sales, first to the Pentagon and then to, uh, to U.S. allies. Um, but from the point of view of the U.S. military-industrial complex, you know, it has sort of run its course. How can you keep justifying endless, uh, endless increases in U.S. military spending based on, you know, fighting, you know, guys with box cutters and, no, and no. you know, um, and the, 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 these, these lightly armed, you know, terrorists in different countries. Um, and so the U.S. is now shifting. But it's so profitable. Once again, for, yes. back to what amounts to a second Cold War, saying that, yeah. no, our real enemy is not ISIS. Our real enemy is Russia and China. Oh, and Iran, of and, course. And, and, of course, Iran. Iran, you, I guess you could say, is a sort of intermediate step between, <laughs> uh, you know, endless wars in the Middle East and actually going after Russia and China. But... Um, uh, Yes, so we are now, you know, the, the only way they can justify increasing U.S. military spending beyond its record amount, yeah, which, it, yeah. I mean, it's currently now still much higher than, than it ever was during the Cold War, even at the during height Vietnam, yeah. of the Vietnam War or the height of Reagan's arms buildup. We are spend now, even under Obama, we were spending more on our military than at any previous time since World War II. Yeah, it's, it's, but how are you going to keep that keep that going? And so, uh, essentially, um, you know, the, the, I, I, as you say, we if if these things did not exist, we would have to create them, or the U.S. military-industrial complex would have to create them. And, and this it's is a business model. What it is doing. Yeah, it's a business model. Pope Francis has referred to it as merchants of death, relying on a catastrophic business model 
the feeds on chaos, political instability, human rights violations, disregard for international law, the triumph of militarism and brinkmanship over diplomacy. And I got to ask you, you mentioned President Obama. The article points out, Republicans derided President Obama's doctrine of covert and proxy war. They, they called it leading from behind. Now, aren't the Republicans now carrying on that very same policy? Absolutely. Absolutely. And you, 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 won't, you just won't hear them calling it that anymore. <laughs> True. Yes, that is what they're doing. And, uh, and all, of this, all of this, you know, Trump complaining that, you know, our allies are not spending enough on their militaries. Um, yeah, well, I don't know what else you can call that but leading from behind. What, what about uh, the post-9-11-2001 authorization for use of military force? I remember that well. What are the long-term effects of that, the AUMF? It seems like that's like sort of a carte blanche for things like the war in Yemen. And I wonder if, if Congress well, is looking at that. That, that, is the way it's, that is the way it's being used. It's the way it's being treated. In fact, that authorization, if you read it, was quite specific. It authorized the president to use force against um, those responsible for September the 11th. Uh, yeah, that was the Saudis. It's being used <laughs> to uh, attack, you know, just about anybody else. Yes. Yes, of course. And you're, there's the War Powers Resolution. You know, it's, there ha, as you mentioned earlier in the discussion, it's come close before that, that uh, a lot of people in Congress are starting to pay attention to this, never mind that the, the populace doesn't really know about it. There haven't been any protests on the street because our boys <clears throat> aren't dying, aren't being hurt there. So, you know, it's just all being done by proxy and by, uh, by others. We're projecting it. But anyway, there's this new War Powers Resolution bill, and the prime sponsor is Ro Khanna of California. She says withdrawing U.S. support for the Saudi coalition is now a, quote, mainstream position within the Democratic Party. I wonder if that's accurate. And do you think Republican leadership might allow this uh, resolution to come to a vote, given that they have the majority? What is the status of this resolution? Well, as of now, it, it only has 53 co-sponsors, of whom 50 are Democrats and three are, Republican, three are Republicans. I think this could actually attract bipartisan support. Um... You know, uh, it, it, it's shocking, really. I, I mean, I think I, I think most Americans at this point would would agree that that the U.S. needs to stop participating in this. To you know, to whatever extent yeah, Americans are aware that the U.S. is participating in it, um, and yet this still only has fifty co-sponsors. I'm still trying to get my representative. Frederica Wilson to sign on as a co-sponsor. I'm I'm going to send her a third request on that uh, to her chief of staff uh, this afternoon. Um, so I wonder but, what help, help the listeners. What is there a bill number and the the coast? The, yes, yes. Go, go ahead. The, the bill is H Conres eighty one. That's what you need to ask your representative to sign on as a co-sponsor of. You can Google that. Go to, you know, go to, um, con I guess it's congress.gov. And, you know, you can search for the bill and search for the co-sponsors and see if your 
member of Congress might be one of the 50 who has signed or 53 who have signed on to it. Um, but obviously, out of 435 members of Congress, if only 53 have signed on, the odds are that yours has not. So please ask them to do so. That's true. HCON Res 81. And we'll say that again before the end of the show. Now, the Norwegian Refugee Council has been very concerned about this situation uh, for a long time. They issued a report. Uh, it says, it isn't that Yemen is a forgotten crisis. It's just one that the world chooses not to care about. What about the United Nations? Is it that, that the support is there, but the U.S. consistently uh, blocks it? And what about Russia? Where are they in all this? Yeah, I, I, you know, I, I think Russia has been critical, um, but you know, Russia, Russia too, probably wants to sell weapons to the Saudis, and um, yeah. you know, and and of course, Russia is already involved in Syria. They're already involved, um, you know, in helping part of Ukraine defend itself against the Western-backed coup government that we installed in 2014. Um, you know, I, I think, um, you know, I, I'm, sure, I'm sure Russia would diplomatically support, uh, you know, a peace process in Yemen or a ceasefire, um, but they have not been very vocal about it. Um, uh, they have other fish They to are more more vocal probably in terms of talking about Iran and defending the JCPOA and trying to work with the Chinese and the Europeans to, to sure. um, you know, to set up a, a parallel system so that um, other countries can keep doing business with Iran. Um, but and yeah, no, they've, they've been pretty quiet on Yemen. And, and what about Iran? I, I've heard, you know, right-wing uh, voices saying that, well, this war in Yemen is really a proxy war between the U.S. and Iran using Saudi Arabia and the people of Yemen are, you know, at effect of this for sure. What, what is Iran's involvement in there? Are, is it really Saudi Arabia versus Iran? And certainly the Saudi government really hates Iran. They don't want to have any kind of power struggle at all in there. They don't want any competition to their power in the region. So t what is Iran's well, role in all Saudis this? Saudis and, and the U.S. government, you know, present this in that way. But there's not much evidence of Iran really giving much uh, material support to to um, the Houthis in Yemen. Um, they don't even regard the Zaidis as real Shiites, so the, the, the religious aspect of it is weak. Um, and as I say, no one has produced any evidence, really, of, um, of any you know, large-scale supplies of weapons. There's, there's, a, milit there's a Saudi-led naval blockade stopping supplies getting into Yemen. That's part of why the people are starving. Um, you know, and the justification for that is that they're trying to stop weapons getting into the uh -huh. port of Hodeida and and other ports on the Yemeni coast. Um, but as I say, there's not much evidence of, of Iran really supporting the, the Houthis. The, the Houthis are pretty much on their own and um, you know, it's it's the people of Yemen who are being attacked here, not you know, yeah. not so so to you know, uh, 
So I think that, that that's pretty much a part of how the Saudis are trying to justify this. But I, I don't think Iran really is heavily involved on, on the Houthi side. Interesting. And you also write that no conflict of interest is too glaring for Lockheed executives like Ronald Perriot, uh, I'm not sure I pronounced that right, who's taken part in public events to promote the war and defend Saudi Arabia and its allies, arguing that the U.S. should help them finish the job in Yemen. What is the job they need to finish? And what are they talking about? How would they define winning? Well, I would say they would define winning as, you know, destroying the Houthis. Um, That's not know, it, it, It's hard to say. I mean, you know, just as the U.S. went into um, Afghanistan and Iraq yeah. and, and Libya and... You know, I mean, I mean, wars no end way. when right. people agree to stop fighting. When one side surrenders, or or one side completely invades the other country and they and they completely surrender, um, or when the sides come together and and have it, you know, through diplomacy, reach uh, a negotiated peace agreement. And your um, your your colleague Medea Benjamin writes. If the U.S. withdraws its support for the Saudi-led bombing, a negotiated settlement is sure to follow. Could it just be that simple? It sounds like it might be. Well, I mean, it, it, it's hard to see how the Saudis could... I mean, you know, the, U, the U.S. is supplying critical support to the Saudis. You know, in-air refueling of their planes on their way to bomb Yemen, um satellite intelligence that we provide to them to, you know, to, to plan these attacks, um, you know, which, uh, you know, there are, there are U.S. officers in the room as they plan these attacks, mm. um, you know, that end up bombing school buses and marketplaces and hospitals. Um, so it's up to us. And um, once again, and it's up to us. All the weapons. Most of the weapons are coming from the U.S. Of the course. second largest supplier is the U.K. Ah. Um, and the U.K. government is also getting heat on this, possibly sure. more than the U.S. government is getting. Sure. Um, and so, um, you know, as in all these intractable situations, um, you know, the Houthis are still there. They still control oh, most, of the, most of the more inhabited parts of the country. Um, and and they're going to stay there. I don't think there's any any possibility of of winning this. I I don't know. I can't quite see it. But we are not powerless. Once again, there is HCon Res eighty one sponsored by Ro Kana K H A N N A R O, and her last name K H A N N A of California. Ask your member of Congress to do something about that, to sign on as a co-sponsor of HCON Res 81. And if people are interested in following uh, your work, there's always Code Pink. Check them out on Google. I don't know if there's anything else you can suggest, but uh, it's been a very interesting, revealing conversation, and uh, we are not powerless. We can once again end the war. Thank you so much for being with us, Nicholas. You're welcome. Thanks for having me, Bert. All right, we'll see what we can do to stop the war.
Listen to 